Okay, let's just uh, bow our hearts one more time as we come before the Word together. Well, Father, we thank you for your Word. Lord, we thank you for the men and women through the ages who you have used to not only record the words that we have in Scripture, but then faithfully to transmit it down to us. And Father, we thank you that your word reveals your nature, your character, your goodness, your grace. Lord, everything we know of you, really we know from your word. And so, Father, we thank you for this precious gift that you've given us, this, Lord, evidence of who you are. And Father, as we just continue our our journey through your word this morning, Father, as we uh, look at these books, Father, just give us insight and understanding into the intent of not just the Holy Spirit, who is the ultimate author, but Lord, of these individuals, these penmen who you used, Lord, as they recorded for us the things that you'd laid upon their hearts. And Father, help us to not just see these things as historical, but Lord, applicable to our lives right now. And so, Father, we pray that we would grow in knowledge and grace as we study together this morning. We just give you this time in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've come as far in the journey through the Bible as the Hebrew Christian epistles. We looked last week um, at the book of Hebrews, which is the first of those. Um, This morning we're going to move on to look at James and 1st and 2nd Peter. Um, so these are part of this category. There's eight uh, that fall into this, uh, this grouping, uh, often referred to by Bible commentators, as I say, as the Hebrew Christian epistles, simply because they were written to a Jewish audience. Uh, rather than being written to the Gentiles, these were written to the Jews, Jews that have been dispersed typically after um, the, the troubles that had occurred in Jerusalem. Uh, the church had very much relocated down to Antioch, um, but then from there, the Christians and the Jews had gone out uh, around uh, the Middle East, around the Mediterranean and so on. And typically there were synagogues of Jews all over the place. Um, and that really had started from uh, a few centuries before Christ. The, the Jews had started spreading out and merging with some of the other cultures. Um, but the Christians now were starting to merge out as well, uh, as the Lord was uh, using them to fulfill the word that he'd spoken to them uh, back in the book of Acts. He said that you're to be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in Judea, and to the ends of the earth. Well, they'd started in Jerusalem, and everything was going fine. They didn't need to move, and so God gave them a little bit of encouragement as persecution arrived, and suddenly they finally had to move. And sometimes God does that in our own lives. Uh, Everything seems very comfortable. Be very careful if you're a Christian, you're comfortable. Um, because normally something's coming. And uh, certainly for the, the Christians in Jerusalem, um, the Lord arranged, allowed um, persecution, particularly with the situation with Stephen, and they started moving out to Judea, and then obviously from there to the ends of the earth. And we thank God for his grace in doing that, because it's because people like Paul ventured off uh, into uh, Europe that the gospel has come down ultimately to us as well. So And of course the gospel was intended not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles, to bring all together in Christ. So um, this group that we're looking at, and as I say this morning, James and 1st and 2nd Peter are going to be our focus. So let's start by just looking at the epistle of James. The first thing we need to mention is, it's not really the epistle of James. Uh, That's the English, uh, the anglicised version of the name. Uh, Really it's uh, Jacob, or Yaakov, uh, is the the individual that we're, we're dealing with here. Um, now, there's a number of uh, Jameses that occur in Scripture, um, but this seems to be almost certainly the, the half-brother of Jesus. Um, not a believer during the time of Jesus' ministry, um, but after Jesus had uh, died and rose again and ascended, this individual had become a believer. Uh, what an incredible situation that must have been to have grown up in that household 
and knowing all the time that Jesus was just so different. Um, and then suddenly coming to the realization that kind of your half-brother was God. I mean, that's just, that's going to be kind of mind-blowing, isn't it? And it's interesting as, as James writes his letter, because he doesn't play on that, he doesn't talk from an elevated position or anything else. There's a real humility that comes through. Um, but uh, seemingly James himself was married, as reference that in 1 Corinthians 9, and becomes the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Um, as I mentioned earlier, this church in Jerusalem had certainly flourished uh, and grown and we see in Acts 15, James presiding over this council meeting um, as this question is raised to them about what about the Gentiles? What do we do? Do we allow them in or, or whatever? And of course, um, Peter testifies on that occasion. Peter had already had his experience with Cornelius and realized the whole sheep being uh, uh, lowered from heaven with the food on it and the Lord saying to Peter, you know, eat and kill or kill and eat. Um, probably the best way around, um, and so on. And James, uh, Peter realizing that God was saying that this good news of the gospel is to go to all the world. It's not exclusively just for the Jews. And so that question was really very much addressed at that meeting in Jerusalem. Uh, and James, as I say, presides over that meeting. And we see him elsewhere in the book of Acts. Incredibly, this account that we're looking at here seems to have been written just around 12 years after the resurrection. Oh, that's fascinating. You think what you were doing about 12 years ago, and you can remember it reasonably well, can't you? Yeah, it's not that far back. I mean, if we talked about September the 11th, the Twin Towers, none of us would have a problem. If we, if we asked you to write down your memories of that day, where you were, what you were doing, I expect all of you can remember, and probably remember with some real clarity. Well, just some 12 years after the events, here James is recording these things and writing now a letter um, to these churches and to these believers. We see that um, when Peter was released from prison, uh, he instructed uh, them to go and tell James. Again, James in, in this position of authority presiding over the church in Jerusalem. Uh, and as you said already, in that uh, uh, verdict that was given uh, by the Jerusalem Council, Acts 15, um, regarding uh, the Gentiles and so on, uh, James is there. Um, Paul reports to him also when he arrives back in Jerusalem, Acts 21, 17 to 26, records that for us. Um, but also we seem to find that his name was used without permission by some of the Judaizers. So these were Christians who wanted to kind of get back into their Jewish roots uh, and come back under the law. And they kind of quote that they'd come from James. Well, they may have come from James, but they didn't go with his blessing. Uh, Galatians 2.12, we see a reference to that. Uh, finally, we find that James was executed in 62 AD, uh, became... Uh, well, no, he didn't become a martyr. A martyr isn't about the way you die, it's the way you live. Um, and James gave his life um, for his Lord, for his Saviour. Uh, but we have this testimony that's lasted, obviously, down through the ages that God has preserved for us. Uh, William MacDonald in the Believer's Bible Commentary says that uh, he was notable as a very Jewish Christian. Uh, extremely strict in lifestyle. And it's no surprise he'd grown up in a very Jewish culture and a very Jewish time. The oppression of the Romans was very evident. And as James grows up, then very much the whole uh, emphasis on a religious life, a uh, life under uh, the Jewish laws and things would have been all around him and clearly had influenced him very much. And so it's no surprise as he writes, he writes to those that are like-minded. But it's very interesting, we see many, many parallels with Matthew's Gospel uh, in respect to the themes that James addresses. Just to go through some of those things. Um, adversity, well James deals with that in the first and fifth chapters. 
um, paralleled very much in Matthew 5, 10 to 12. Prayer, both of them address that. Uh, you can go through these scriptures uh, at your leisure if you want to. Um, the fact that we should have a single eye and so on in James 1, uh, but also in Matthew chapter 6. The issue of wealth uh, is addressed by both James and Matthew, uh, and so is wrath and the law also. Um, mere profession, uh, not being enough, again is addressed by both. The royal law uh, is addressed in a sense by both of them as well. Uh, mercy, faith and works, uh, root and fruit, uh, very much a, a theme that Matthew expounds and develops in chapter 7, but James also will uh, address that in chapter 3 of uh, the book we're looking at this morning. And then True Wisdom, again addressed by both um, the peacemaker uh, and so on, the role of um, ourselves as missionaries and serving the Lord as the ones that are going to bring peace in the name of Jesus. Judging others is addressed by both. Um, and Rusted Treasures, you know, laying up treasure on earth will never produce anything of lasting value. Uh, and then finally, uh, oaths also. So, uh, and we see there's a very kind of Jewish theme through many of these things. Both of them uh, address very, very similar topics. Matthew, of course, writes his gospel to the Jews um, to present Jesus as the Messiah, as the King of Israel. Well, James writing to believers, um, but once again uh, with this kind of very Jewish mindset behind it. Interestingly, the kind of the, the sub thing really is that it's about conduct, not creed. It's not just about the words that we say, but it's the way we live our lives. It's about behaviour, not just belief. It's about deed and not doctrine. Now, the danger is that as Christians, we can be so intent on having the right creed, having the right belief, having the right doctrine, and they are important. And sadly, many churches just dismiss those things. No, they are important, but. More important is that we live the life that we profess, that by our conduct, by our behavior, by the things that we do, we demonstrate our belief in those things. And that is a theme that James will really uh, develop for us. But also, the whole idea of uh, endurance by faith, um, the outward trials and the inward temptations is addressed in the first chapter. And it goes on, really, the kind of tests of the genuineness of faith. And it's interesting the things that are listed here because we've got our response to the word of God. I think that's fascinating because I, I've met a number of people, I'm sure you the same, who profess to be Christians and have no regard for the word of God. Well, I think that's a great giveaway because if you don't love the word of God, how can you truly say that you're a follower of the word of God manifest in the flesh, Jesus Christ, the word of God himself? You know, and of course there is this incredible um, uh, tie-up between Jesus, the person, and the Word of God. We have God's written Word, um, but it is also Jesus. It's kind of um, it's always it's hard for us to kind of get our heads around. So, you know, our response to the Word of God is a very good indicator of where our heart really is, whether we truly have repented, whether we have sought God. If you don't love the Word of God. Well, I would suggest, as Paul often suggests, you should go and examine yourself. See whether you really are in the faith. If you don't like talking about the things of God, a very good indicator that maybe that transition, that change has not taken place from that old life to the new. Because when God's Spirit is in us, there's a hunger, there's a thirst of spiritual things. A response to uh, social distinctions, another area um, which is a test of the genuineness of our faith. Uh, the production of good works, and we'll go on to talk about some of these in a moment, but uh, exercise of self-control. 
You know, we're told of the fruit of the Spirit, and this is part of the fruit of the Spirit. A lot of people think that we have fruits of the Spirit, uh, and you know, some have this one and some have that. No, no, it's the fruit of the Spirit. If the Spirit indwells you, the fruit should be manifest in all of the things uh, that we find listed for us, uh, including self-control, should be evident. So as a believer, self-control should just naturally be part of our lives. Why? Not because it's of ourselves, but because it's of the Spirit of God within us. So it's another great test, and James will allude to this. Our reaction to the world, to worldliness. You know, do we love the world and the things in the world? Are we offended by the things that worldly people do? In the book of Romans, Peter talks there uh, about people that you know, not necessarily get involved in the sin, but have pleasure in those that do them, is the way that uh, it's worded for us in Romans. And there are many people that say, oh, I would never do that. And yet they quite happily sit and watch a film that glorifies all sorts of things that you would say, oh, I wouldn't do that myself. And yet we have pleasure in, the, in things that other people do. You know, what is our reaction to the world? And again, uh, do we resort to prayer in all circumstances? Another great test uh, of the genuineness of our faith. You know, we know how powerful prayer is, but how often do we really get on our knees uh, and come before the throne of grace when we've got such an incredible invitation at any time to come and pray? And prayer, so, so important. But, you know, if we haven't truly been converted, if, if somebody is just going through the motions, well, then prayer can become very secondary. And uh, sometimes it's only when people get into real difficult predicaments uh, they suddenly resort to prayer. Uh, well, prayer should be the first thing we do. So James will address a number of those things. <clears throat> James also, interesting, just use nature um, to illustrate spiritual truth, truth. And it's interesting because over 30 times in these just five chapters, he kind of looks at something in the natural world to draw us to God. And it's, it's not uncommon in Scripture that we see God examples drawn from nature. And, uh, in the book of Romans, we're told that, we should, that the very creation itself testifies of God. Now, we need to understand more of God than just nature can tell us. Nature can't tell us all the things that we find in the Word of God. But nature is a great way of the things that God has created to illustrate God's nature, God's character, his goodness, his faithfulness, and so on. And so James will use over 30 different uh, times uh, natural things to illustrate spiritual things. There's also frequent references to the law. Not surprising, of course, because of the Jewish background that James has come from. Uh, It's called the perfect law, the royal law, and the law of liberty. Now, James doesn't contradict anything that Paul says. James understands, of course, that we are not made perfect by the law. In fact, the law just condemns us. And that's exactly what Paul says and James concurs. He doesn't teach that the readers are under the law for salvation uh, or as a rule of life, but rather that portions of the law are cited as instruction in righteousness for those who are under grace. You see, the law is given and it's good. It's God's standard. And there's much that we can learn from the things that we find recorded, particularly in books like Leviticus and Deuteronomy. So much there of instruction to us as to how we should live and so on. Well, one of the key words that occurs is brethren. Fifteen times that word occurs. And James, not placing himself above the people he's writing to, He's just one of a number of brothers under Jesus Christ as our head. Uh, so he doesn't kind of assert any authority himself. And just, he's writing to like-minded believers, people he wants to encourage, people like us this morning. 
Faith also is uh, mentioned 15 times. Uh, a big kind of uh, portion of, uh, of James's writing really is addressing what our faith should be like. You know, we say we have faith. What does it look like in practice? Well, that's what James will address. And then works, of course, uh, is another one of the big topics uh, of the book of James. And, of course, works are not part of our salvation. We've mentioned this a number of times. We're not saved by the things we do. One of the things that we see cults do so often is to get involved in works. You have to do this to be saved. No, for us, we're saved by grace alone, by faith alone in Christ alone. It's so simple. But works should accompany salvation. You know, that portion we were looking at last week in Hebrews chapter 6, a portion many people find a little bit uh, troubling, um, and it's talking about... um, losing our inheritance, losing the things that we've worked for. But the writer of the Hebrews goes on in chapter 6 and says, but we are persuaded better things of you, things that accompany salvation. That's the, really the key to understand the whole of that portion. But it's true because there should be things that accompany our salvation. And this is one of the big things that James will mention. Wisdom also, four times. Uh, not a huge number of references, but it's, it's key that James points to wisdom. And uh, there's some analogies that we could make um, to the book of Proverbs in the, some of the things that James draws out uh, thematically. People have suggested that James was then the most authoritarian letter in the New Testament. Uh, because the way he writes, he's not written as a you know, suggestion, you can do this, you can do this, but very much as kind of a commandment is the way that James writes. And, and rightly so, because he's writing with authority that, that God had given him. Um, he issues instructions more profusely than any of the other writers in the New Testament. And in the 108 verses that make up this book, there's 54 commands that are given. Um, so it really is, it's kind of a, a sit up, pay attention. Uh, there's stuff here that's really important that we need to take note of. So let's just go through and look at some of the key things from the various chapters. Well, chapter 1, just a quick breakdown for you. We've got the introduction. And then really the whole theme that starts to develop is that we should have joy in the trials that we go through. I kind of wish that wasn't there, really, because sometimes when there's trials, I just want to be grumpy and go and sit in a corner. Um, but, you know, we're told to be joyful because those things will help us. We'll look at just a moment. Um, we will be single-minded as well. Be content. These are all kind of challenges for us. We're to endure temptation. And we're to be doers, not just hearers of the word. It's kind of like it's one of those chapters, it's like, maybe I'll come back to this. But, you know, this is there for our instruction, for our learning. James says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith works patience. But let patience have a perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. You see, it's only through that struggle that we become what God wants us to be. You know, if there were no challenges, if there were no temptations, what kind of training program would we be going through? It would be so easy. You know, I'm reminded of the... Sorry, Shane Bob's not here this morning because he'll probably tell you far more detail than I can, but with butterflies. Um, butterflies go through this um, stage as they're going from a chrysalis into a butterfly, and they go through this incredible struggle. And if, you, if you've ever had the experience of being able to watch, even speed it up or whatever, as a butterfly is going through this process, it looks at some points as if it's just given up and it's just going to die. But it's resting. It's trying so hard to force its way out of this chrysalis. And then eventually it gets out. And that process of forcing its way out is actually pushing the fluid into its wings. And unless it did that, it would never fly. Unless it went, unless it went through that struggle, it would never fly. 
And it's a great analogy, really, again, drawing from the, the natural world that God has created, um, of the things, the way it is with us. Unless we go through, through some of those struggles, we won't learn to fly either. You know, and as James says, that it's a, the trying of our faith that works patience, and that, that in turn will mean that we are perfect and entire or complete, I think the New King James says, wanting nothing. I love that. That's the way God wants us to be. You know, are there things that you kind of want for this morning? If only I had this or that situation was or this. You know, and sometimes we can be in those places. Well, God is saying, I want you to be content right where I've placed you. In the midst of suffering, in the midst of trouble, whatever. And that's how God would have us. You know, and you think of the three uh, Jewish young men, Hananiah, Azariah and Mishael, to give them their proper Jewish names because the Hebrew names are reference to Babylonian gods. Um, You know, in the fiery furnace, how were they? Well, seemingly quite content because the Lord was there in the midst of it with them. And that's the thing to remember, that we never go through a trial on our own. <clears throat> the other thing, of course, is remembering that all of our work is worthwhile. You know, and sometimes we go through times, and it's tough. For those of you, those of the guys and ladies here this morning helping set up, it was tough. The van's in for a service. Some of us started very, very early this morning, um, just taking everything apart from the usual equipment we have, putting it together and getting it loaded and down here in the pouring rain and so on. And it's very easy to go, oh, is it worth it? Well, you know, it is worth it. You know, for a start, nobody's out there with um, stones throwing at us or uh, whipping our backs and things as Paul and those people had. But what we do for the Lord, our service for the Lord, you know, when we go out and speak to people, whatever it is that we're doing, when we're showing our, 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 our obedience to God by being hospitable, inviting people around for meals, or doing whatever it is that God has given you a ministry or a gifting in, it's worth it. We're told also, blessed is the man that endures temptation. You know, and that temptation can come in a number of ways. It could be the temptation to give up. It could be the temptation to some sort of sin, some satisfying some lust of the flesh. Some desire for revenge or to get even, that type of thing. So often those kind of things can be very subtle, the way they come in. But we're told that if we endure temptation, and by the way, we will endure temptation. It's not something we can say, oh, I, I don't want to be tempted. We will endure temptation. Jesus was tempted. But we're told, blessed is the person that endures temptation. For when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to them that love him. You know, there are rewards for our labor. That's one of the clear messages. As we've been going through the New Testament, that I think I've seen personally, I hope you've seen that as well, that the Lord is saying, you know, not only have you got salvation, as if that wasn't enough, but the Lord is giving us rewards and promising us this, this treasure in heaven. All these things await us if we're obedient, if we're faithful. It's not wasted. It's worthwhile. There's a kind of chain reaction that's uh, listed for us in the first chapter as well. Verse uh, 13 picking up. It says, Let no man say when he's tempted, I'm tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempts he any man. But every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. And then when lust is conceived, it brings forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. <laughs> and then he says, do not err, my beloved brethren. That's a command. <laughs> Let's just back up for a second. I mean, that verse 15, really. When lust is conceived, it will bring forth sin. Now this is why we should flee temptation. Because the moment we linger, just for a little bit, and lust 
conceives. And, of course, you think of conception. It starts so small, doesn't it? But once that conception has taken place, a process begins. And in regard to this situation, it will bring forth sin. And there's no stopping it, because sin, when it is finished, will bring forth death. Now, I think, looking at other scriptures as well, we can make a good case to say, actually, it will bring forth one of two types of deaths. It will either bring forth the death in us of the things of God, or we will put to death the things of the flesh. But we need to be so careful, because the danger is that we can become hardened to the things of God. And this was one of the warnings that we saw last time in the book of Hebrews. That we can become hardened. Our conscience is becoming seared, as it were. We lose sensitivity. We no longer have that precious, precious gift of repentance. So we need to be so, so careful. Because once this process starts, and it may seem so innocuous to start with, oh, it's not a big thing. But once it's conceived, just that little thing, I love that song, um, some of you are familiar with, By Casting Crowns. I think we played it uh, uh, way back one Sunday morning, um, called Slow Fade. And there's just a lovely line in that song uh, towards the end. Uh, it just says, people uh, never stumble in a day. And then it goes on and says, families never, stu- never crumble in a day. And then the last line really kind of hits home. It says, daddies never crumble in a day. You know, it's not just one thing and that's it. You've, you know, just you've fallen, you've backslid, you've walked away. It's a process, little by little by little. It's little increments all the time. And that's the way the devil would have us. Just chipping away, pulling us away from the things of God. Well, the solution is this. Because in verse 27, James says, Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction. And there's good things to do, by the way. We could major on that. But the last line is what I want to talk about. And to keep himself unspotted from the world. It's, it's, you know, this whole Ebola thing. We're seeing people on telly with these suits on and everything else so that they don't get spotted, as it were by this disease, so that even an airborne particle won't alight upon them. You know, people are taking such precaution. Well, what about us? Because sin is all around us. And James says that we should keep ourselves unspotted from the world. Well, I'll let you think that through in your own life and how that is played out. But it is, again, just like Joseph, fleeing from temptation. Don't hang around to find out what the outcome is. Just get out of there. Let's get unspotted from the world by not allowing ourselves to be put into situations. Well, it's chapter 2 really just speaks of no partiality being shown and again goes on to talk about good works. And the first thing, let's just look at this, is my brethren have not faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. And he goes on and says, For if there come into your assembly a man with a gold ring and godly apparel, and there come also a, a poor man in vile raiment, and you have respect to him which wears the gay clothing, words have been altered a little bit, you understand what we're saying here, colourful, happy clothing, that's what the word really means, uh, and say unto him, Sit thou here in a good place, and say to the poor, Stand there, or sit under my footstool. Are you not then partial in yourselves, and become judges of evil thoughts? Well, you know, we're in a position that, you know, if somebody were to come in, I hope we would welcome them, whatever they look like. There was a story, um, I believe this is a true story, that um, a church had um, 
been waiting for a new minister to come and to take over. And so they had a, a guest speaker that Sunday morning. And in at the back of the church that Sunday morning came this rather dilapidated looking individual, um, rather odorous, and they're not wearing particularly appealing clothing. And everybody just kind of moved away from this individual. And uh, it just kind of very, very kind of obvious that people were just avoiding this person. And um, somebody eventually kind of went to kind of encourage him to leave because it wasn't really suitable as a very kind of well-to-do kind of church. And then he introduced himself as their new minister. I just thought it was quite interesting. Interesting introduction to your congregation. <laughs> but, you know, just those kind of things highlight how we are so given to um, liking the things that we like, the things that we perceive to be acceptable, helping the people that we like to help. What about helping the people we don't necessarily like to help? One of the things I remember Oswald Chambers you know, wrote and talked about was the fact that as a believer, the Lord will bring you into contact with people with whom you have no natural affiliation. I love that. You know, because if you look around us this morning, you know, in an ordinary scheme of things, from a worldly perspective, would we have ever come into contact with each other? Would we ever spend time together? Maybe some individuals would. But as a body of believers, and you look at any Christian group, any church, there's a range of different people there from different backgrounds. You know, and of course, look, with every church, there's some people that are eccentric. There's some people that are very timid. There's all sorts of characters. But we all learn to get on with each other. And that's something that we'll look at in just a moment as we move into Peter. But, you know, we're not to, to show partiality. We're just to have this love for all because that's the way that God loved us. And James just carries on. Yeah, a man may say, thou hast faith and I have works. And James just says, right, show me your faith without works and I will show you my faith by my works. He says, you believe there's one good? Great, well done, good. Well, the devils do that and tremble. He says, but will you know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? If there is nothing in your life to demonstrate that you are a believer, then James says that your faith is dead. There should be something, there should be some obvious aspect that, that there's some work going on, you're doing something. Even if, and this is not an even if, but even if you're just praying. One of the biggest things that we should and could do as Christians, to pray for each other. What are you doing for the body of believers here? It's a big challenge. And James says, if we're not doing something, well, then our faith's dead. It's meaningless. It doesn't have any substance to it. It's the evidence that we are saved. Chapter 3 talks about judgment for teachers. Uh, the whole passage talks about bridling the tongue and godly wisdom. just want to read this one to you. This is from the end of chapter 3 almost. Um, but the wisdom that is from above is first pure and then peaceable, gentle, easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy. That's the kind of wisdom that we should show forth. We could spend a long time on these verses. But let's move on. Chapter 4 really is about eschewing evil in the first five verses, then goes on to godly humility. That's the way we should be. James should know about that because, again, he grew up with God. And then really concluding by, thy will be done. It's not about what we want, it's about what God wants. James 4.4 4 says, you adulterers and adulteresses. What a statement. He's writing to brethren here. He says, know you not the friendship with the world is enmity with God. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of this world is the enemy of God. What a challenge to us. How often do we allow ourselves to be friends of the world? I was quite pleased the other day. 
Not, it's not just an age thing, but at work they were talking about some individual and I genuinely didn't know who they were talking about. And again, as you get older, that happens, I appreciate it. But there was, it was somebody apparently who was very popular and, you know, and I just didn't know and I just moved away. I didn't want to be part of the conversation they were having. There was some famous female celebrity and talking about her exploits and everything else. And I just didn't know who she was, didn't, know, didn't care. I thought, that's good, I like that. You know, but then there should be, with us, we, why do we want to know what's going on in the world anyway? I mean, of course, in terms of the things that we see from a political perspective or the things that are fulfilling prophecy, of course we need to have an understanding. But just the social life of the world, why does it mean anything to us? We don't want to be a friend with the world. We want to be a friend with God, with God's people, with the things that are holy, which are upright. Well, the final chapter really again speaks of the futility of riches, the fact that we shouldn't have grudges, that we should grow together. And then we have this verse, often misunderstood, confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that you may be healed. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And it gives us an example of this. Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are. He prayed earnestly that it might not rain. It rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. He prayed again, and heavens gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth and one converts him, let him know that he which converts a sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. Well, firstly, this portion isn't talking about confession. A lot of people have misinterpreted it to say that we should confess our sins. No, it starts by saying confess your faults. The word in the Greek is not implying sin. We shouldn't go and confess our sin to each other. There is one to whom we should confess our sin, and that is Jesus Christ. But confessing our faults is admitting to each other that we also struggle, that we have problems. You know, I'd encourage you not to share the sordid details of your sins with each other. Please don't do that, because you could cause another brother or sister to stumble. But we should confess our faults. We should be honest enough to admit that actually we do struggle in certain areas. And we have a problem here or a problem there. Please pray for me. You know, because we're all in this together. And again, we're told that the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And if we're not having people praying for us, we're missing out on something that's free, that's there to help us. Okay, let's uh, move on to look at Peter. Just an uh, overview of some of the things that Peter addresses. Well, <laughs> in First Peter, we see... Um, the Christ is the cornerstone of our faith. In Second Peter, Christ is our strength. So both of Peter's epistles, very much similar kind of theming, really, but it's all about Jesus. Firstly, that Jesus is the cornerstone, the bedrock, if you like, of our faith, and then the strength, that which enables us to stand on that foundation. Key word is precious. Seven times that occurs through these two letters. In, uh, chap- in the first letter, um, chapter 1, verse 7, we've got the precious trial of faith. Chapter 1, verse 19, the precious blood is alluded to. Chapter 2, verse 4 to 6, but the precious cornerstone, speaking of Jesus. And again, uh, chapter 2, verse 7, precious Christ. Precious spirit in chapter 3, 4. Precious faith in Second Peter, chapter 1, verse 1. And then finally, precious promises. This word precious, Peter seems to like this, and it seems to be a, an underlying theme here of these things that we have that are truly precious, that we've been allowed access to, that we've been given. Let's then jump into the first epistle of Peter. Well, <clears throat> really the, the theme here, as we said, 
is very much looking at that Christ is the cornerstone. But the opening uh, couple of chapters, um, really, he's looking at the, the status of the believer. Um, and I'll let you go through some of the, the sub-notes here and things that are broken down. This is actually from Chuck Misler, this breakdown, but quite helpful. Uh, it goes on to talk about the pilgrim life and then the fiery trial that we all experience and so on. Uh, this was written, by the way, from Babylonia. Um, and Babylon had the highest concentration of Jews outside of the land. No surprise there, because they spent 70 years there in captivity. The Babylonian Talmud, of course, was developed there. And Peter becomes the apostle to the circumcision. Whereas Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles, Peter's the apostle to the Jews. And so, naturally, after being dispersed from Jerusalem and so on, it's a very obvious place for Peter to end up in Babylon. And of course there's a challenge here because there's a very popular misconception that Peter writes this uh, epistle from Rome. And even the Roman Catholic Church will say that Babylon is Rome, which is a kind of a link they really probably didn't want to try and expose too much, but there is some truth in that. Um, But Peter, there's no evidence he actually even went to Rome. And again, most most Catholics will will argue that one quite uh, vehemently, but There's no evidence scripturally that Peter ever went to Rome. Um, This seems to be without any question written from Babylon in what today is known as Iraq. What I also find interesting is that Peter really, particularly in the first chapter, the first letter, first of his letters, uh, underlines here the theme that we've seen expounded as we've gone through the New Testament uh, over the last few months. Firstly, that we've been begotten, born again into a lively hope, something that's living, and we have this hope. We have an incorruptible inheritance. Again, this theme that's been going through. We're kept by the power of God. We're being purified to stand with Christ. And we have the assurance of salvation. We've been given an incredible gospel that even angels desire to look into. We've got a great hope. that enables us to keep going. And we have redemption through his blood and then finally we're born again by his word again talk about the importance of his word chapter 1 verse 23 highlights the fact that actually we're born again through the word as well so all this really underlines this theme that we've seen that yes we've been saved we're being sanctified we are to do good works because of all that waits us because of all that's coming Picking up verse 3 of chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fades not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. I think Peter's got some uh, lessons in how to construct sentences from Paul because these sentences are quite long, some of them. But the whole theme of that is live your life now for Jesus Christ because of all that's coming, because of what awaits us. The inheritance, incorruptible, undefiled, fades not away, it's reserved in heaven. It's really laboring this point. And that we've been kept by the power of God for all that is coming. You know, so many Christians live a life that is not, in a sense, ungodly, but it's all focused on now. It's all focused on what we're currently doing. And the theme through the New Testament is our focus, our hope, should be all that is yet to come. 
And that should be the motivation for living the way we should be living now. Well, the introduction of the first chapter, first five verses, and then we go on to this theme of perseverance through trials, very similar to James. And of course that's no surprise because the Jews had experienced, the Jewish Christians had experienced real troubles. We talked about that last time in the book of Hebrews. The fact that the writer to the Hebrews is addressing one of the problems, which is that they were being encouraged to get back into Judaism. It would ease the pressure a little bit if you did that. As we said last week, very much like us, rather than being a, a church that's not content to conform to the um, ecclesiastical norm in this country. Not content to just come under the banner of some uh, recognized denomination or whatever else. Because we'd rather stick to the word of God. You know, and in time I'm sure we will see greater trials and persecutions come for ourselves. Well, the church, uh, the early church was struggling with the same thing. And most of these, these Jews had that temptation. And so James and now Peter encouraged the believers, persevere through these trials. Then really just talking about the privilege of our gospel. We'll mention that in just a moment. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10 says, Of which salvation, speaking of the salvation that we have been given, the prophets have inquired and searched diligently. So we're talking about Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Amos, all those minor prophets that we read about, Habakkuk and the others. They searched diligently, trying to understand what God was doing, what his plan was. They prophesied of the grace that should come to you. Wow, what a privileged position we are in this morning. You are sitting here, I'm standing here. We are beneficiaries of something that these great men of faith, and ladies too, back through scripture, they spoke about. They longed to see. We read, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. See, Isaiah particularly, he knew. He recorded that incredible chapter that we have, Isaiah 53, speaking of the sufferings of the Messiah. David, recording in advance the events and the things that would take place at Calvary. And so many other things. Writing in advance stuff that we now look back on and we understand, we see from the other side. Unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us, unto you and me this morning. They did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven. And by the way, we can make a study on that alone. For the Holy Ghost now has been sent down from heaven to abide with, to indwell the church. No prophet in the Old Testament had that privilege. Now, of course, there were some that were filled with the Holy Spirit, no question, but not in the same way that you and I have the Holy Spirit indwelling us with the promise that he will never leave us. You have something that Isaiah didn't have. That David prays in Psalm 51 after his transgression with Bathsheba, Lord, take not your spirit from me. You never have to pray that prayer. Again, we're told that even angels are just desiring to look into these things. In Ephesians, we're told that God's wisdom is manifest by the existence of the church. The angels go, that's what God was doing. That's what it was all about. That's why he sent Jesus as a baby. 
And so, because of this, Peter goes on to say, because of this incredible privileged position you're in, wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's an amazing statement. Just think for a moment about what that's saying. Because we experience right now the incredible grace of God, don't we? But this is talking about a grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus. There is something yet to come that we've not really yet understood. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance. You see, there was a time that we didn't know, but now we do know. But as he which has called you is holy, so be you holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, be you holy, for I am holy. And so, because of this privileged position, really, the challenge that Peter lays before us is, so, you've got all this, you've been given all this, what are you going to do? How are you going to live your lives? And the conclusion is, what you must do is be holy. You've been given something so incredible. Well, we're then told about this whole idea of growing up into his house. And really, there's the, the transition and response to that. And we speak of God's order in the latter part of chapter 2 in government. It talks about um, also in the workplace and there's an allusion also to within a fellowship. Uh, God loves order. First Peter chapter 2, verse 5 says, You also as lively stones, living stones, are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. Now, we are being built up with stones that are being built up together. You know, and when you build a house, those stones, those bricks, they need knocking around. Get them in the right place. Because upon that brick, another brick is to be laid. And if that brick isn't quite right, then the ones upon it also won't be right. Well, that speaks of us. And we are being built up. We're being kind of moved into position. I love the, the quote by um, Spurgeon I've read before. And he speaks about when the temple was being built. And there's a reference, um, I believe it's in Kings, um, to the, the fact that the stones were all prepared in the quarry before they were brought to the temple mount. So when they were brought to the temple mount, they were all put in place and they fitted perfectly. And he said that speaks of you and I. We're being prepared in the quarry. We're having bits knocked off of us and we're being chipped around and so on, being prepared. That work is being done because there's not a hammer that is going to be heard on the temple mount. And when we get ultimately to glory, the work will be done. You know, and we'll look back and we'll realize that these trials that we've been going through, that we're told to count joy, we'll see why we should have counted them joy. Because now we are ready and prepared to fit exactly where God has, God has planned to fit. And sometimes we get pushed up against somebody maybe we weren't intending to be pushed up against. You know, and God is teaching us. How to love each other. You know, we weren't all that wonderful when God sent his son to come and save us. There was nothing desirable in us. And we read that again, if you get verse 9, you are a chosen generation of royal priesthood. I mean, again, just think of the magnitude of these things for us. We're a holy nation. A peculiar people. That you should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvellous light, which in time past were not a people, but now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. We could spend the whole morning on these few verses because they just speak of this incredible work of grace 
And again, the privilege that we have. And all of this, is there's got to be surely in your hearts this morning that call to, Lord, what am I doing for you? What do you want me to do for you? Probably more important the question. How can I serve you? How can I say thank you for what you've given me? And then Peter says, verse 11 of chapter 2, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers, I beg you, I plead with you, as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Similar theme to that which we saw in James. Just keep away from those things. Because of what God has given you, Peter this morning pleads with us. This was written to brethren. This is written to believers. Don't get involved in fleshly lusts which war against the soul. And by the way, fleshly lusts, it may be sexual that it's referencing to, but it's also other things that the flesh would want, including bitterness and anger and all those kind of things. That's all part of the flesh. Abstain from those things. Because they war against the soul. Well, chapter 3. Just make camp here just for a few more minutes before we close. And we'll look at the second Peter. I've just got a few comments uh, to draw that to a close. But chapter 3 is a really important chapter for us. Because we start with instructions for wives. And then we have instructions for husbands. And then it just goes on to talk a little bit about unity within the congregation and so on. And then the Christian's way of life. Um, an interesting verse there about who preached to who and where and so on. Maybe we'll touch on that. Maybe I'll leave you to go and do your homework on that. We'll see how we do in a minute. But let's jump into this. So marriage, first of all. Now, the first thing I need to stress is the Hebrew word for marriage means sanctification. It's to be set apart. That's what the word means. And by the way, marriage is the only thing that has come to us from the other side of the fall. It's the only thing that survived Eden. You see, there's something in marriage that reflects God's nature. It's a very, very special thing. And, you know, the Old Testament, we see that marriage was so sacred that the punishment for adultery was death. You know, the world would look at that today and they'd laugh at it. You know, the world has totally tried to rewrite the rules. They've moved the boundaries. They've moved those kind of ancient markers that Scripture speaks of to their own destruction. But this is God's standard. And marriage is something incredibly special. Now, we haven't got time for a detailed study, but I just want to highlight a few things. Firstly, this passage, let me just read verse 1 of chapter 3. It says, Likewise, you wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, speaking of the husbands, if any husbands obey not the word, they also may, without the word, without things being spoken to them, be won by the conversation The character, not the words that are spoken, but by the attitude, by the characteristics, by the demeanor, by every part of that which is observed outwardly of the wives. So the first thing is likewise. So we need to understand, again, this is one of those therefores, if you like. Now, previously, Peter's been laying down the standard for order in the nation, the workplace, the church, and now he focuses on the home. And of course, the family is the basic building block of society. That's where it starts. And so... Now Peter starts to address this issue again. Likewise, you wives. Now, notice women are not subject to men. Okay, that's very clear. It's, but wives are to be subject to their own husbands. So that's not to other people's husbands, but to your own husbands. And as a result of living this godly 
lifestyle. Your example has the power to change your husband because it will cause him to think. There's many ladies here that resonate with that last bit that you'd love to get your husband just to think. But it's interesting because the things that Peter tells you here as ladies, as wives, is that it's not to be by a constant nagging. Solomon, who had some experience of wives, he had 700 of them, speaks of uh, that nagging being like a dripping tap. And he kind of talks about better to live in the attic. And then he goes on a little bit later and he says, actually, better to be on the roof. And finally, he's like, oh, this is enough. I'm going to go and live in the desert. That's the kind of progression. You won't get anywhere by nagging. That's not the way it's going to work. What Peter says is that you'll do it through your lifestyle, through a godly example. Interesting that we've got... Let me just go back to this for a moment. Because I want to just highlight something here as well. What Peter's really saying is that... Because he goes on to talk about your apparel and all sorts of other things. And the point is that the outward appearance shouldn't be your priority. Okay, it's the inward nature that will then be evidenced by the outward. It goes on in verse 4 to talk about wives being meek. And it said that that's a great thing in God's sight. It's of a great price. And it's, you're given the example of verse 5 of the women of old who trusted God. And this is a really big issue because actually sometimes you'll think, well, yeah, but... I'd rather do it my way. I'd rather carry on with my nagging or my, you know. But it's saying that the women of old trusted God. And there's a big trust element here. That you are to trust God in this. That God is saying this is how it is. This is how it works. And of course, we need to just clarify as well. We're talking about the way it should be. In a, a right relationship. In a relationship between two people who genuinely want to serve and seek God. But as it says, even if the husband obeys not God's word, the word... By your conversation, without the word, without you speaking, by your lifestyle. It's interesting, there's only two commands um, that are really given to husbands and wives. In Ephesians 5.33, we're told there, Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular, this is for men, so love his wife as himself. And the wife, see that she reverence her husband. It's interesting because wives aren't told to love their husbands. Why? Because they just do that. You see, the two issues here are love and respect. And the woman is told, commanded, and we have it here, to respect the husband, because that's the thing that she finds hard to do. And the man is told to love the wife, because that's the thing that he finds hard to do. And we need to understand that we are coming at this from different angles. We have this different vocabulary, in a sense. And it's quite interesting, because... As we go on, we're going to jump down to verse 7, because then we get the instructions for husbands. Now, (laughs) again, likewise, because of the sake of order, because of the way that God has intended things to be, this is God's prescribed order. Just a note, by the way, there are six verses for the wives. Just one for the husbands. Now we do find that Peter was married. And I suspect that Peter's wife said, don't give them too much, dear. They won't be able to handle it. So we've just got for men just one verse. That's all we can cope with. Any more than that, it will blow our minds. 
So women, you can handle the six verses. They're there for you. Go read them. Go study them. But men, just got one. Just real simple stuff. I like. I was listening to uh, to Joe Foch yesterday. He was talking about. Um, he got opportunity there. The ladies at the church had gone for a treat, and uh, he'd been asked just to come and speak at uh, one of the sessions they were doing. And um, he said he'd just come from a men's prayer breakfast. He said, and he got to this ladies' retreat and kind of sat down. They were still around the table. He said every one of them was talking at the same time. He said, but the incredible thing was they were all involved in every conversation. Everyone knew what everyone else was saying. He said, at the prayer breakfast, he said, one of the men said, did you see the game yesterday? And all the men went, uh-huh. And it was just one person at a time. So again, men, we've just got it very simple. But look what we've got here. Likewise, you husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Let me just try and unpack this a little bit for us, because there's a lot here that we need to understand. Firstly, Number one, the first point for men to write this down, and if you're not writing it down, I'm sure your wives will write it down and tell you later. Dwell with them. That's the first thing. Spend time with your wife. That's hard. It's instantly a challenge because we have so many other things that we think that we're supposed to be responsible for. But the moment you enter into marriage, you're committing yourself to your wife. And you have to spend time with them. And by the way, I'm not saying this. I've got this all right, and Joy will tell you later that I've not got this all right. We're working on this. But it's hard, because there's all sorts of other things that we think we have to do with our time. But the first instruction we're given here by Peter, spend time with your wives. I think it's been said that women speak, um, some studies, about 3,000 words in a day. Men speak about 2,000 words in a day. By the time the man walks in the door at the end of the day, his 2,000 words are done. The woman is just getting going. But we need to spend time with our wives. That's the first thing. Secondly, this is a tough one, dwell with them according to knowledge. You see, we're to understand, not our wives, because we're never going to understand in that sense. But we're going to un- need to understand that our wives are the way they are because that's how God has created them to be. There is to be a level of knowledge in our understanding of them. As individuals. You know, husbands, before you met your wife, she was a normal person. And for wives, the same with your husband. You know, and when you met, the reason you got together was because you loved each other. You know, and it's, it's funny how those things kind of get challenged as we go on in the relationship. The third thing, though, goes on and says, giving honor. Now, the word in the, the Greek here is precious. Like in this word that Peter's used a number of times already. But it's speaking of price, of value. You're to value your wives. Now, how many men truly value your wife and let her know that she's valued? You see, it's a God-given right. And by the way, think of the model that we have with marriage. We're told it's, it's, between, it's really just a, a, a model to show us what it's like between Christ and the church. Well, you think how Christ values you. You know, having gone through what we've just gone through this morning, do any of you feel not valued by Christ? Being given all of these things? Well, that's how we're to value our wives. Just a if you just allow me just a quick uh, detour here, but hopefully this will be beneficial. There's a, there was a story, I've read this before, I'm going to very paraphrase it. Um, 
there was a, a, a an island somewhere, and um, there was this uh, young girl. Nobody thought anything of her. She wasn't very valued at all. And um, this chap came and moved to the island, and he went to her father and basically said, I want to marry your daughter. And the, at that time, it was kind of... Um, um, you would give some sort of uh, gift, um, animals, cows, whatever. And so he offered to pay for this woman by giving cows. And he gave seven cows. It was unheard of. Nobody had ever given that kind of price. Normally for somebody who was really beautiful and exceptional and so on, you tend to give them you know, maybe three, maybe four cows. He paid seven cows for this wife. And it became the laughing stock of the island. They said, oh, look, her dad obviously saw him coming. He's got a great deal there. But you know, poor chap, look what he's got. Well, anyway... This individual, another person came to the island, he'd heard these stories, and he was really interested to meet this couple. And so, eventually he got to go and uh, go to the house where they were, and this beautiful woman came out, and she served him drinks. And he suddenly realized that this was that lady, this woman who'd been paid seven cows for. And this chap came out, and he started speaking to him afterwards, and said, I just want to understand, why did you do that? Why did you pay? Seven cows, a price that's unheard of. And he said, well, you've seen, haven't you? And he said, well, yeah, and I don't understand because everybody said that she really wasn't all that. And he went on to explain that the value that you perceive yourself in being it will be very much based upon the value that somebody else puts on you. And he said, I wanted the best wife in the island. And he said, and I paid for her. Well, think of that in terms of what Christ has done for us. The value that Christ placed upon you to shed his own blood. Well, now let's spin this back. Because husbands, we're to value our wives. We may only have one verse, but this will take a lifetime. Notice here as well, the the next bit goes on to talk about uh, value them, or to to give honour unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel. Now, this is often one that gets misconstrued and some ladies get very offended by this and so on. Firstly, it's weaker. We're both weak. Let's get that very clear. All right? So not that men are really strong and the women are weak. That's not what it's saying. And the important point is to understand what it's actually saying. Because it's giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel. It's as protecting something of great value. That's the implication. It's not implying that women are weak. But it's implying that they are to be protected as something that is delicate and fragile that needs all the tender, loving care that we can possibly give it. That's how we're to treat our wives. Really, it's saying that we should be jealously guarding our wives. Now, that's the challenge to men, to love your wives. Of course, the challenge for women is to learn to respect your husbands. One of the things that and Joe Foch, um, I was listening to yesterday, made a comment of, was that, you know, if a, a woman said, oh, I love my husband, but I don't respect him. And sometimes you hear those kind of comments. We'll flip that around. How would a wife feel if a husband said, well, I respect my life, but I don't love her? You see, that would really hurt the wife. Well, think how that affects the husband. You know, God has created us as we are for his reasons, his purposes. And he wants us to dwell together for his glory Because this goes on and says that we are heirs together. You see, we've got to understand that we are joint heirs. Man is not above the woman. Woman's not above the man. In that sense, we are joint heirs. We both are given this promise of inheritance. But husbands do have a responsibility before God to love, to cherish, and to care for their wives. 
Now finally notice this last bit. That your prayers be not hindered. What an important statement that is at the end of this. You almost could miss it if you didn't take time and read this properly. See, really, it's kind of, as a husband and wife, God says, you come together or I'm not going to listen. You know, sometimes you get with children, don't you? One of them will come and tell you a story about the other one. You know, well, come on, both of you come, let's talk to you both at the same time. And that's kind of, I think, what God's trying to intimate here. That actually, if we are husband and wife, we should go together. See, we now won. That's the way God has intended it to be. That's how we're to approach the throne. You know, husbands, you shouldn't go to God and complain about your wife. And wives, you shouldn't go and complain about your husbands. You know, this goes right back to Eden, doesn't it? What was it Adam said? The woman you gave me? Of course, this isn't to say that God doesn't hear us individually. Of course God does. But if we are married, we must understand the importance that God places on our union in marriage. And that we should go to the throne together. Not necessarily, although it's certainly important to try and pray together, but we are united And that's how we should pray. When we're apart, whether we're together, when we go to the throne, we should be united. We should be growing together. Okay, so Peter also says this great verse, Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. We could spend a long time on this. A great verse. But we should have an answer. I mean, if the things that we've looked at this morning are not enough, the privileged position that we've got, you know, why do we believe it? Well, because of all the stuff we're getting free of charge, that God has said, you can have this if you simply repent and follow and trust me. But there's so many more. We've got so many answers. And we should have the confidence to share with anybody that asks us a reason for the hope that is in us. Chapter 4. Again, please take these books, read them through yourself, allow the Lord to speak to you through them. But it deals with suffering in service in chapter 5. There's really a, an exhortation there to those that are in leadership to feed the flock of God. So just very quickly, just a couple of slides, three slides and we're done um, on Second Peter. It's really, again, the need to grow, warning about false teachers and then promise uh, for the end times and the fact that scoffers are coming and so on and so on. So just a summary of what we see in Second Peter is firstly that we've been given exceedingly great and precious promises. We've already been looking at some of those today. Peter makes the point that we've not followed cunningly devised fables. But he says, well, eyewitnesses. And then he goes on to say, but we've got something even better than that because we've got the more sure word of prophecy. It's better than any possible thing that I can see with my eyes. Sometimes we can be deceived the things that we see. Peter says, we've got something that is rock solid, that's prophecy. And he goes on to say, there's going to be attacks. They're going to come from within the church. There's going to be false teachers. Watch out for them. Be careful who you listen to. Make sure you know where they're coming from goes on to say that the righteous are going to be preserved, even through those troubles and those difficulties. But there's also going to be persecution from outside of the church. There's going to be those that will scoff at his word, particularly in the days that we live in. The things that they're going to scoff at? The ark. They're going to make a a joke of that. There wasn't a flood. They're going to try and say that all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. You know, uniformitarianism, the idea that nothing's changed, it's all been the same. Evolution fits nicely into that little bracket. 
James Lyle, James Hutton, all these kind of individuals. One of their expressly stated intents was to try and get things away from Moses. They hated Moses. They hated what the Bible said. And so they came up with their theories, not because there was scientific basis to it, because they just wanted to have something other than the Bible. But the Lord goes on and says that he's not slack concerning his promise. He's long-suffering. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You know, and it's by God's grace. You know, if 20 years ago the Lord had said, right, that's it. Time to draw a line. I'm going to take them back now and that's, then tribulation begins. Where would some of us have been? How many of you have become Christians in the last 20 years, the last 30 years? You know, the Lord is patient. He's not willing that any should perish. And there's more people around us in this town, this area, that are yet to come to know him as their Lord and Savior. And then we have this great verse, which concludes, it says, But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. And we often, I often pray this in prayers, and I think it's such a great thing. We are to continue to grow in grace, and we need that grace. You can't do it in your own strength. But we also grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. And that will come through studying and reading his word. To him be glory, both now and forever. Amen. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you for this time together this morning. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for these lessons. Lord, it's just so practical. Teaching us how we should live here and now in this world that you've placed us. Father, we thank you for the lessons you teach us about how we should be as those that are married. How husbands should love their wives. How wives should respect their husbands. How we should all love each other as a body. How should we have, should have no partiality. Lord, so many things that we see. But Lord, again, we are just so taken with these exceedingly great and precious promises of all that is yet to come. Lord, of all that you have for us. Oh Lord, let that be the motivation that stirs us to good works. Father, give us that boldness that we have an answer for anyone who asks us of the hope that is in us. Oh Lord, we just thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. And again, may we keep growing in grace and in the knowledge of our great God and Saviour. For it's in Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen.